morning, church. If you'll take your copy of God's Word with me and turn to Nehemiah chapter 12. This morning we'll conclude Nehemiah chapter 12, and then we're going to take two weeks to look at chapter 13. We'll split that up into two parts. And then we'll be done with the book of Nehemiah, the conclusion of our Ezra-Nehemiah study. We'll transition then to the Gospel of Luke. We'll take a brief two-week reprise. And uh, Joshua Jones and David Garner are going to bring some messages from various portions of the scriptures to us. And then we'll move into a study of the gospel of Luke. So that kind of gives you an idea of where we're going in the coming months. But this morning we'll begin in Nehemiah chapter 12 with verse 27 and going all the way to the end of the chapter. As I read this morning, please remember that these are the words of the Lord. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So the sons of the singers were gathered from the district around Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, from Beth Gilgal, and from their fields in Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built themselves villages around <clears throat> Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites cleansed themselves, and they also cleansed the people, the gates, and the wall. Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall... And I had two great choirs of thanksgiving stand, the first proceeding to the right on top of the wall toward the dung gate. Hoshea and half of the leaders of Judah followed them with Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, and some of the sons of the priests with trumpets. And Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zachur, the son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Melali, Gilali, Mai, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the spring gate, they went directly up by the steps of the city of David, by the stairway of the wall above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded to the left, while I followed them with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of furnaces, to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, by the old gate." By the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate, and they stood at the gate of the guard. Then two choirs took their stand in the house of God. So did I and half of the officials with me, and the priests Eliakim, Maaseah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elioani, Zechariah, and Hananiah with the trumpets, and Maaseah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzai, Jehohanan, Malchijah, 
Elam, and Ezer. And the singers made their voices heard with Jezrehiah, their overseer. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices and were glad because God had given them great gladness. Even the women and the children were glad so that the gladness of Jerusalem was heard from afar. On that day, the men were also appointed over the chambers for the stores, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them from the fields of the cities the portions required by the law for the priests and Levites. For Judah was glad over the priests and the Levites who stood to minister. And they kept their responsibility given by their God and the responsibility of cleansing together with the singers and the gatekeepers according to the commandment of David and his son Solomon. For in the days of David and Asaph in ancient times, there were chiefs of the singers, songs of praise and hymns of thanksgiving to God. So all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah were giving the portions due the singers and the gatekeepers as each day required and set apart the holy portion for the Levites and the Levites set apart the holy portion for the sons of Aaron. And thus far is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. And let's ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Father, our prayer this morning is the words that were sung to you just a few moments ago. Come thou incarnate word, gird on thy mighty sword, our prayer attend. Come this morning, Jesus, in the power of your spirit and thy people bless and give thy word success in spite of the weakness of any who preach it. Spirit of holiness, on us this morning, would you please descend. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, our family had an opportunity to visit the Creation Museum in northern Kentucky. It was our first time there, and we were told ahead of time that you can't see everything that there is to see in one trip. So we asked for tips on what would be the most important exhibits in the museum to catch. Almost everyone that we spoke to gave a hearty encouragement. You've got to go sit in the planetarium and watch the presentation that they give there. And now that our family went and saw it, I know why. The only way I can describe it is that it was an unfathomable experience. The presentation began with the sphere of the earth, trigger warning for any of you conspiracy folks, it was not flat. <laughs> and then it showed the earth and its relative distance to the International Space Station, which sits just outside our atmosphere, a little over 270 miles from the Earth's surface. This narrative, then, of God's filling the universe continued as we were transported to the nearest planets to the Earth. And again, it was showing the growing distance from planets to our world. And then it extended to the end of our solar system. And then we looked at some of the nearest stars and the constellations that we recognize. 
in our little Milky Way galaxy, and then it went to the edge of the Milky Way galaxy, and then it showed the distance to the nearest galaxy from ours, along with high-resolution images of stars and black holes seen through powerful telescoping technology. And then we saw a number of galaxy clusters. The galaxies in the universe are clustered together in, in arranged ways. And then we saw how many of those clusters of galaxies fill what is today our known or you might call observable universe. However, the universe, we're told, is still expanding. Now, both Tammy and I and the kids walked away full of awe at the power of our God to create the most vast of spaces and not waste any of it. He just fills it up with glory. Last week, Evan read to us from Genesis 1.16, which in the Legacy Standard says, And he also created the stars. As I prepared for this morning's sermon, I kept coming back to that pattern of God and how he creates a space, and then he fills it up with glory. And then, in his wisdom and in his power and in his might, he sustains all of that glory himself. And that's precisely what we see in our text this morning, another type Another shadow of that same theme. God creating a space. He fills it with glory and then he sustains it. He recreated a city and a temple within that city for worship. And he recreated a wall around that city for defense and protection. And he aims, as we see this morning, to bring all of the people of God into that city to worship him and bring him glory. And through their contributions of love to one another cause his city and his people, his tribe, his heritage, his Israel to thrive and flourish. Now this morning's message is going to continue along that sort of typological theme. I try and avoid too much typology. It can be an easy way for preachers to avoid giving direct application to the text. They give you a broad picture of what's being said and they don't put the text as it's said right in your lap. But this morning, I just kept coming back to this theme again and again and again. Create, fill, sustain. And how that same theme is also reflected in the final commands of Jesus before his ascension. The mission of God on earth is for us, Jesus' people, to take the kingdom of God that he has created and by the power of the Holy Spirit of Christ to go forth and preach the gospel and fill that kingdom with his children. Fill it with disciples. And along the way, to provide for and nurture and care for that kingdom through the means of grace, the preaching of the word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, through our evangelism, through our gifts and contributions and our offerings. And how Jesus commanded us to do this until the work is finished and he returns on a white horse to judge the living and the dead. Well, in Nehemiah 6, verse 15, which we looked at several weeks ago, we read, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. 
Now, how much time had elapsed from that last brick going down on the wall to this ribbon-cutting ceremony, if you will, that we're at this morning is unknown to us. But what we do know is this. At the point at which they needed to dedicate the wall, they still weren't ready. The celebration was planned, but the city was empty. All the guests had not arrived, and the choir loft still had many empty seats. The full number of the Levites, if you will, had not yet come in. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they, that is the people of Israel, sought out the Levites from all of their places. This is from verse 27 of our text this morning. They sought them out to bring them to Jerusalem so that they, Israel and the Levites together, might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals and harps and lyres. Now, where are these singers at? If this is truly to be a celebration of God's redemptive work in giving his children back their city and their heritage, and most importantly, a restoration of their covenant with him, where are all the worshipers of God? So they went on a hunt. And they went to the towns surrounding Jerusalem, the villages of the Netophathites, from Beth Gilgal and from their fields in Geba and Asmaveth. These are areas to the north, to the east, and to the south of Jerusalem, almost surrounding the city on every side. Once the guest list was full, you see in verse 30, the ritual cleansings were undertaken. Now, this could have included the washing of one's clothing. That was commanded in Exodus 19, as was the abstaining from sexual intercourse before a holy ceremony, and the sprinkling of either water or blood of an animal on the gates or the wall. That was commanded in Leviticus 14. But in order to truly worship God, one must be made clean. You cannot lift your hands in praise to God while still clutching the idols of your sin. Who may ascend into the mountain of Yahweh, the psalmist says, and who may rise in his holy place? He who has innocent hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to worthlessness and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall lift up a blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. What's emphasized for our understanding here in chapter 12 of Nehemiah, in these cleansing rituals of the priests and the Levites? Dirty hands will not offer acceptable worship to God. You must be made clean. But we have a much worse problem than the Levites. Though they may have been concerned with dirty hands that touch an object and make it unclean, we, as did the Levites, have dirty hearts and we have no way to get the soap of cleanliness inside of us and scrub our hearts and make them clean from the stain of sin. And John the Baptist cries out in the wilderness, Behold, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who does take away the sin of the world. One thing that struck me as I studied this week was how the people's joy in celebrating was tied to the full number of singers 
coming purified and standing blamelessly before their God. Let me read verse 27 again. They sought the Levites to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness. It says with joyfulness in another translation. Whose gladness? Well, everyone's. Israel's, the priests, the Levites, the leaders, Nehemiah, Ezra, everyone. The whole city needed to be full of the family of God before the party got started. Because we serve a God who creates a space and then he fills it up with glory. The triune God does not leave the glass half anything. Tell those who have been called, Jesus says in the parable, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to my wedding feast, Matthew 22. And after numerous excuses and outright rejections to that master's invitation in the parable, there were still empty tables at the celebration. So the doors were opened, and all were invited to come in, until finally the wedding hall was what? Filled. With dinner guests. This much we know to be true, beloved. The great and final dedication of the city of God, the kingdom of Jesus, when he returns in the clouds on that white horse to begin the marriage supper at the end of human history, and myriads of voices will be standing in jubilant song, raising praise and honor and glory to Jesus that will not take place until the wedding hall is full. Because our God creates a space, and then he fills it. And our God wants not just the space to be full, but he wants our joy to be full. And do you believe, beloved, that God cares about you having a fullness of joy? Do you believe that? He does. This is one of the many reasons that he wants the wedding hall full. Let me give you an example. In just over six weeks, our friends will be rolling suitcases towards a baggage check-in desk in Atlanta. They'll be preparing to board a plane headed for East Asia. They're leaving us at the command of King Jesus to carry this gospel invitation, the invitation to this wedding feast... The dedication ceremony of the kingdom of God, they are going out to disciple the nations, to baptize them and teach them obedience to everything the once crucified and now risen Savior of the universe has commanded. They will go in the power of the Holy Spirit to make the kingdoms of this world the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ fully unto the end. Our parting with them will certainly bring sorrow. But it will simultaneously plant the seeds of the expectation of all of our eschatological joy in our hearts. Through their obedience to the Great Commission, the full number of the Gentiles will be further advanced in coming in. One day in eternity, you will bump into someone from some obscure village in the currently reached, unreached areas 
And you will ask them how they came to hear about King Jesus and his great wedding feast. To which they will respond, family from your church invited me. And both of your faces will light up with joy. Because God cares about filling up our joy. Because he wants his wedding hall full to his glory and his praise. This is how the Lord intends to fill the wedding hall with guests. This is how he will fill heaven with the offspring of Abraham, who will outnumber all of those stars that are in heaven that our family saw at the planetarium. Because he loves his spaces full. So, to use the language of this morning's text, and their partners going overseas are looking for more Levites. Now, is there someone here whom God might be stirring to go with them? Let me begin by saying this. God motivates us to every good deed in the kingdom of Christ by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. And what I mean by that is that the Spirit of God, when He motivates, does not do it with condemnation, but with conviction. In other words, if you're sitting there right now wondering if you may be called to do international missions... It won't come in the form of a vague sense of guilt. I kind of feel bad because I don't do that. So maybe I'm supposed to go because I kind of feel bad, but I'm not sure why. You will get, if it's from the Spirit of God, a precise sense of your duty. We do not have enough singers for the great celebration of the finished city. Go out into the countryside and get some singers. Yes, I have to do that. I must invite people in. The wedding hall's not full yet. I must go. That's what conviction from the Spirit feels like. Do you have a desire to see that banquet room of the marriage supper of the Lamb filled with guests? You don't know how, but you feel as though you must begin progress to eventually go. God is putting the invitation in my hand, and I know that I have to take it to the lost. If God is truly calling you, Satan will oppose you by creating fear. Well, you know it's too dangerous for growing families to go on trips like that. The church is facing too much opposition today. The world is so unstable right now. It's not a good time. It's not a good time. Brothers and sisters, we may be headed into the darkest period of church history. I'm not convinced that we are, but we may. But the church, the church of Jesus Christ has always outlived its intended murderer. Always. G.K. Chesterton once said, at least five times throughout the history of the church, the church has, to all appearance, been thrown to the dogs. In each of those five cases, it was the dog that died. No, you don't have to go around the world to fulfill the Great Commission. Yes, we are a church committed to the New Testament local church model. And God is calling us to do local-focused evangelism primarily out of this church. But a shrewd battle strategy is often to establish a base on enemy lines. And God has given us called and equipped and qualified people to do just that. And perhaps there is someone here whom he's stirring to partner with them. Now let's jump back into our text again and look at this next section, verses 31 to 43. 
Once all of the Levites are gathered in from the surrounding towns and everyone has been purified, they begin this merrymaking ceremony. In verse 31, Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall, and I had two great choirs of thanksgiving to stand. Now this is interesting. Nehemiah, you've known him to this point as a pretty intelligent general contractor. And you've known him as a military strategist, a pretty shrewd one at that. But Nehemiah is also, in a way, assembling the worship team here. He's helping to prepare for the great worship of Yahweh when they surround the city. He's one of those guys that we say has range. He takes the talent that's given to him, he invests it, and with the return, he invests more. And he brings back more, and so on and so forth. And we need more men and women like this. Do you believe that God is willing to bless you in a similar way? Do you believe that if you take the little that God has given you and you invest it and bring a return and then invest that and bring back more, God will continue to bless you? Do you really believe that he's for you in Christ in that way? A couple of weeks ago, I spoke to those of you who feel like you're so far behind. You look at fathers and mothers and families here and you feel like you'll never arrive. I'll never be there. I'll never grow in maturity to reach that point. They, they got a huge head start on me. Unbelief is an open insult to the grace of God. It is. Behold, the hand of Yahweh is not too short that he cannot save. Nor is his ear so dull that he cannot hear, Isaiah 59. And my God will fulfill how many of your needs? According to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus? Philippians 4.19 says, all of them. How much is Yahweh able to pay back to you for the years that the locusts have consumed? Joel 2.25 says that he can pay back in full all of them. How far behind are you? Doesn't matter. Jesus said he can pay back all those years. He can turn all the failure into success for his now kingdom. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Beloved, repent of any despising of the days of small beginnings. Don't despise them. We're commanded not to. Don't despise that moment when you're prompted to have the hard conversation with your spouse. Or of telling your kids that you've been wrong in letting the TV, TV babysit them for hours and hours every day. And that you're not going to do it anymore. Don't despise that. That's the day of small beginnings. We're going to be a different family. We're going to take a different course. We're going to pursue God in this way. Invest a little, take what God gives you back, and make more. He is able to create men and women of this kind of Nehemiah-like range in our church, no matter how far behind you might feel. Now, verse 31 states that he made the choirs to stand, but you see there in your text that this is actually more of a processional. Beginning from what's likely the valley gate, 
which was on the south um, west side of the city, trying to think of my cartography in my head. And beginning in both directions, the choir made their way around the city, eventually to the northern part of the city, where the Temple Mount was. Now, if you look at New Testament maps of your Bible, where it shows like the city of Jerusalem, it's shaped in Jesus' time more like a square. But in Nehemiah's day, it was more like one of those seashells you might find on, on, the, on the beach that is kind of conical shaped. It kind of goes up and then has a, a big top, and that would be where the Temple Mount was. And the majority of the city was towards the southern part. So Nehemiah divides the leaders, the Levites and the people, into two groups. And at the end of verse 31, we read that the first group proceeded to the right on top of the wall toward the dung gate and led by Ezra the priest proceeded counterclockwise around the city. So they probably made their way onto the wall first. They had the longer journey because they had to go a little bit south and then all the way to the north and eventually up around to the city. If you'll skip down, though, to verse 38, you see that the second choir proceeded to the left, while I, that is Nehemiah, followed them with half of the people on the wall. And this group walks north in a clockwise direction and makes their way to the temple grounds. Interestingly, in Nehemiah's group, no names are mentioned. It's strange, and we have no reasons why he didn't mention the people that were in his group, whereas Ezra's companions were named. But as I bring this section of exegesis in for a landing, I want you to consider a few things here. The last time that we hear of Nehemiah entering the valley gate was when? It was back in chapter 2. When he went out by the valley gate in the middle of the night. And he was inspecting a city with almost entirely broken down walls. Now he's processing into a city by the valley gate on top of the walls of a finished city. The nobles of Judah, you remember them. They haven't exactly been the most supportive bunch. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 5, they wouldn't lift a finger to help with the building project. Perhaps they've repented. And now Nehemiah has them actually come up first, stand among the congregation as people process around the top of the walls, and they helping to lead the praise of the city. And when was the last time that someone referred to the strength of Jerusalem's walls? Well, it was back in Nehemiah chapter 4, when Tobiah, the Ammonite slave, was mocking the workmen, saying that a fox could knock it over if he climbed up top. Now it carries the weight of the entire congregation of the returned exiles. And when was the last time that people came into the Temple Mount area and made their voices heard? Well, we'd have to go all the way back to Ezra chapter 3, verse 13 for that. And the people were crying loud, and it was heard from afar. But there was a mixture in the crying. It was sorrow mixed with gladness. Now look down at verses 42 and 43 of our text this morning. The singers made their voices heard with Jezrehiah their overseer. And on that day they offered great sacrifices and were glad because God had given them great gladness. Even the women and the children were glad so that the gladness of Jerusalem, the gladness of Jerusalem, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more lamentation diluting the joy. The city of God is finished. Yahweh has now 
enveloped the city in gladness and joy and praise to his name. Tying this back into what I spoke about a little while ago when I referred to missions, John Piper once said that missions exist because worship doesn't. And he's right. God be gracious to us and bless us. God cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you will judge the peoples with uprightness and lead the nations on the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. <clears throat> God blesses us that the ends of the earth may fear Him. That's the entirety of Psalm 64. What is missing right now knowledge of the salvation of Jesus Christ the Lord sits as judge over the whole earth but the citizens of small villages and the rural communities in that country neither acknowledge nor rejoice at his rule one way or another there is a day coming when they will all bow the knee to Christ but will they bow in fear and dread because of their coming doom or because Yahweh did what he did in verse 43 of our text this morning. Because he gave them great gladness. Again, our eschatological joy is tied to the full number of the elect in attendance at the opening ceremonies of the new heavens and the new earth. The mystery of the ages is that the Gentiles also are fellow heirs. Members of the body of Christ. Full partakers of the same promises given to Abraham in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Which means there will be in that choir one day. Will your, mail, will your mail person be in that choir? Or your bank teller? Or the person that you share an office space with? What about the relatives that you've been apprehensive to share the gospel with to this point? Afraiding that it might cost you too much. Will the person that you are thinking of right now sing with full-throated joy on the day when Jesus comes back because you didn't shrink back from sharing the gospel of Jesus with them? Ask them this week, would you like to be a part of our choir? Ask them. Now, let's look briefly at this last section of our text. We see in verse 44 a zeal in regards to tithing and contributions from the people for the service of the priests and the temple. This is something that you may remember the congregation covenanted to do back in chapter 10, verses 32 to 39. In verse 44 of our text this morning, there's monetary, physical, and nutritional contributions made to the priests and Levites. Regular maintenance and ceremonial cleanness is mentioned in verse 45. And as commanded by David and Solomon, the hierarchy of musicians and varieties of songs were employed and implemented. That's verse 46. You see in verse 47 that all Israel, from the days of Zerubbabel to Nehemiah, representing the entire history of the returned exiles, all gave what was due to whom it was due. In summary, quoting from the covenant made in Chapter, 20, chapter 10, we will not neglect 
the house of our God. If I was to summarize from the new covenant and the fruit of the new covenant. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds and the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as any had need. That's from Acts chapter 4. God creates a space, then he fills the space, and then he provides for that space. He upholds the universe, Hebrews 1 verse 3, by the word of his power. You see the same thing in our text this morning. God recreated the kingdom, he filled it with worshipers, and he not only commanded them to provide for those who serve, but he put within them a desire to conform, not merely a command. To riff off of what Evan was saying last week, the command is just a reflection of God's love and character, the reality, the way that the world was made. Through the command, he conforms them more to the image of his likeness. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is God stirring your heart now, not to go, but to help send overseas? You may be sitting there thinking, I don't have any desires to go and serve in the way that his family are, but I want to be a part of the success of this trip. I want to see you under the lordship of Jesus Christ. I believe that God is calling me to give. That was the work of the vast majority of the Israelites here. That's what almost all of them did. They contributed. The father of modern missions, William Carey, missionary to India, famously told his friend Andrew Fuller once, I will go down into this pit, he was referring to India, if you will hold the ropes for me. He was saying in a sense, I will descend into the dark unknown, the emptiness of this God-forsaken land, with the myriads of souls each consumed by the corruption of their sin. And I will bring the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I can't climb down there unless somebody supports me. Somebody holds the rope that I'm repelling on. As a result, Andrew Fuller would help to found and serve as the head of the Baptist Mission Society, with which he traveled all over Britain raising money for Carrie's work. Few will go, many will support. The elders believe that this is the only responsible way to do cross-cultural missions. When we lay our hands on and send them off, we are not telling them to go seize the destiny of their felt needs. And we wish you all the best. We are affirming together that there still are pits of darkness and emptiness in the world. And that God is in fact calling them to do something about it. And that they can trust that we will hold the rope for them. Now, the elders have told that our church will take responsibility for making up any lack of the support in their budget. Even if that means we cover all of it. Even if we have to cover 100% of their needs as a church. We will do that. There's no other way to do missions. The local church has to support their missionaries. If you sense a desire to offer your support as well, and to the young people here, I'm speaking to you too. It doesn't matter how little it is that you might be thinking that you could give. You can give that in the offering plate each week or each month. Just designate it somehow to the... But consider this. Today, the world that we live in is full 
of more of the light of Christ than ever before in human history. It may be hard to believe, but that is a true statement. To go from 12 frightened disciples in an upper room to whole continents of the globe dotted with houses of worship to King Jesus, the Great Commission has, in fact, come a long way. But as you know, there is still much darkness left in the world. And God intends, through the work of His church, to fill that world with the light of His glory. What's your contribution to see that mission advanced in this brief life you have? Through your personal evangelism here in East Tennessee? Or by beginning the process of preparing yourself for overseas work? Or by cheerfully giving on a regular basis to our friends as they prepare to go? God has created the space. He intends to fill it. And He will sustain it. How is He moving you this morning to help, beloved? Father, would you please, through your word, show us all how we are to engage, to get up and act, to take the small talents that you've given us, and to work towards the growth and expansion of your kingdom? Would you please lay that conviction precisely on our hearts, not with a vague sense of, I wish I could do something, but I don't know how, but with a precise sense of, this is how I want you to participate. Because in order for this city to be finished, and in order for us to celebrate with full-throated joy, everyone must work. Some will go and invite in. Some will provide and give. Many of us will stay here and evangelize our neighbors and bring in those from the local areas who may have heard some but not all of the gospel. Or Lord, perhaps they've just become bitter at you in their heart because of years of being in the church. And yet they will, when we preach the gospel to them, perhaps, this time they will repent and come back to Christ. Would you give us courage to speak, courage to go, courage to give? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.